Welcome to Kick-Ass Boomers, giving you the motivation and inspiration you need to make the most of your later years. Whether you're still in the planning stages or you're several years in, we'll share stories from boomers who refuse to act their age and continue to live a life inspired. Let them show you how being old can be new if you know what to do with your host, Terry Lorbeer. Hello and welcome to Kick-Ass Boomers. My guest today is Dr. Catherine St. Catherine is 87 years old, a best-selling author, practicing psychotherapist, a widow, a mother, a grandmother, and an activist for aging well. She's on a mission to dispel myths about old age and to end ageism which limits and undermines the most experienced among us. She lives in a retirement community west of Boston. Her recent book, 80-somethings, a practical guide to letting go, aging well, and finding unexpected happiness. Welcome, Catherine. How are you today? I am just wonderful, and it's lovely to be here with you, Terry. And I'm very excited to share this hour with you. Me too. And you look great and I'm happy to have you. Let's start our conversation today talking about your book and I'll repeat the the title. It's 80 something, a practical guide to letting go, aging well and finding unexpected happiness. So how is being 80 different from being 70 and how has your life changed in your 80s? Yes, well, I think my life changed with a bang, sort of a lightning bolt when I was uh, just 80. I had an experience where I went for a hike with my uh, a bunch of my grandkids and uh, children. And it was a hike I had done for 40 years in our summer place. It's a small mountain. It's about an hour and a half in, but it is a little steep at the end. But this year, when I was, it was right at my 80th birthday, I kind of fell really soon. I scraped my knee. I kind of, and when I got to the bottom of that steep place, which you have, it's a little scramble. I realized I couldn't do it. I absolutely couldn't do it. And I couldn't believe it. But it was like this aha moment. I sat down on a stump and said, just said to my, uh, the kids and my son, I'm, I'm going to not go up. And it was a moment where I had to realize I couldn't just go on being, uh, doing everything I'd always done. So I sat on that stump and I kind of had to come to terms with, I am old, older, and uh, I can't do everything. I had sort of thought of myself as super mom. I could still do push-ups, look at, you know, and this was a, a, a moment for me. So, and then I sort of went into a funk. Then I decided, well, that's not, I'm an optimist. I have a lot of good energy. And finally, I said, well, I've got to find out. There must be some people that are managing being 80 um, and enjoying themselves. And, and I wanted to find out, find out who's figured this thing out of being 80 because I was in a funk. And uh, so I started interviewing people. So as I got going, I suddenly was having so much fun. It was, I was, my good spirits returned. I had this project. It was going to be a book. 
and I interview people all over the country, not only in my own retirement community, but on many states. I took when I took a couple of trips, I interviewed more people when went to California and Ohio. And by the time I'd finished uh, 128 people, I had plenty for the book and I had found some very interesting things. And I found myself again, most importantly, and uh, the transitions that came uh, like being in the retirement community, you know, that was fine. But I, I had a whole new attitude about aging and being in my 80s because otherwise the 80s can be tough because many people have to move to a smaller place or they lose their spouse. But I had gotten in shape for the realities of aging. Right. And I think we have to be realistic. You know, I'm still in my 70s and I, I'm assuming my 70s will go really well. But I know once I hit that 80 year mark, things will change and you have to be able to change with it. You have to stay optimistic and positive. My grandmother lived to 91 and she used to get up every day and work in my aunt's restaurant for four hours. So by doing that, she went into the restaurant kitchen. Everyone knew her. Everyone loved her. Everyone called her grandmom. She was there cutting up the salad and the vegetables and doing all of that. And she got her social in. She got a little bit of physical activity in. And then she went back to her little trailer and would watch TV in the afternoon, take a little nap. And that was her life. And she loved it. And I think that is important, that social. We're going to talk a little bit later about that social part of it, because I think it's an important part of aging. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I have a come up. And so I kind of sailed through my 80s up to 87. I really was in amazingly good health. And people would all say, Catherine, you're walking so fast, because compared to many people, I was. <laughs> right. Yeah. Then I had a major operation uh, just this last year when I turned 87 and was in the hospital for a couple of weeks and had six inches of my intestine taken out. And so it's been a recovery. And I'm just now, four months later, kind of getting back to being just 99% of where I was before. I went for a lovely walk yesterday in a cranberry bog and, you know, So I'm doing very well, but it was a reminder that things can happen and you can't tell, you know, came out, happened overnight. So they can, but the healthier you are going into that, like most 87 year olds would not recover in four months. It would take a year and some of them will never recover from something that invasive. So you are doing excellent. I was doing excellent and I was very in good shape. So I helped, but it did take some uh, adjustment. I was balked when I was told I should use a walker for a while. And and uh, so now I do have hiking sticks, but that's the limits of what I'm doing. So I, uh, you, you know, that's all true that, you, you know, it, it, it pays to be in good shape and uh, help me out a lot. Right. So my next question is, ageism is all around us in society. You said in your book that you felt you should retire at 65 because that is the age society expects us to retire. You fought that urge and continued working a full-time job until 75, and you're still working today, but you stopped your full-time job at 75. So tell us a little bit about that. Right. Well, I was a manager, a principal manager of a consulting firm that we consulted internationally and with big corporations like uh, Chevron and Gillette. And I found it was the consulting life is really hard. It's uh, you're traveling, you're getting on planes. It seemed to, you know, my husband wasn't doing that well. And so I left, but I'd always kept my license to practice as a psychotherapist in my pocket. Every year I'd renewed it because I knew there was my plan B. I've always had my plan B. In Mm. fact, 
when I went to a financial advisor with my husband, the advisor said, well, Catherine, when do you plan to re- uh, retire? And I said, 85. And that was, I was, <laughs> and my husband said 65 and he retired actually at 62. And I am, I'm actually, since I even, we, we got talking, I set a date, but you know, and I have, am ending my private practice now at 87, uh, which wow. I just, is not premature. It does mm-hmm. uh, like the right time, but up to uh, so on uh, November twelfth is going to be my last day of seeing clients, which is sad, but it feels right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm taking up my now my p- new plan B, which mm-hmm. is uh, I'm writing a lot of blogs and articles about aging well. This is my mission, as you mentioned. So yes. I found that the writing and the speaking, which I'm doing a lot of speaking on podcasts like yours. That, that was like having two careers again and right. uh, that time to let go of the private practice. And uh, so that's what I'm doing uh, in the next two weeks. Uh, I've been saying goodbye to people over the last three months, but right. And, and then turning to, uh, you know, continuing to uh, do speaking uh, engagements and writing my uh, monthly uh, or more an art blog and articles that come out from time to time. Right. And you make an excellent spokesperson for the quiet generation, which I believe that's what you're part of, the quiet generation, or you're not. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Would, yeah. But you're not quiet. You're not quiet. And you shouldn't be. <laughs> I never was quiet. I, all through school, I was always scolded for talking too much. But <laughs> the quiet generation is, you know, it, born between 1928 and 45. And we are, so I'm considerably older than most of the boomers because I'm in the middle yes. of the right of the generation. Right. And I remember we were told at graduation by uh, our speaker that we were the silent generation and kind of chastised for not being protesting more. And it, <laughs> and I never thought of protesting. And in fact, my whole sense of uh, mission and work came late because I certainly didn't get uh, in college. Nobody said to me, what are you going to do for a career? I thought I'm going to, I got married early in the middle of my senior year, actually. And I just, my mother hadn't worked. I just didn't, and it was late, not till I sort of edged into it that I found how important work was, how much I had to say and how much I enjoyed uh, being, a, you know, going to social work school, being a psychotherapist, uh, working in community mental health. Right. Well, I'm so glad you found your voice. And I think that's important. I'm glad you're kind of retiring from your psychotherapy practice. And now you're going to be more of a spokesperson because we need more older women that are spokespersons for us because there really hasn't been a roadmap. So baby boomers, we know we want to do things differently, but there hasn't really been a spokesperson or people we could look look up to like you who have worked till they're 87. I mean, I think that's great. And now you're going to be out there as a spokesperson. And there's lots of places you can go and make speeches. And now with Zoom, you don't even have to travel, which is fabulous. You can just be on a Zoom call so that the information gets out there. You get to connect with people, but you don't have to get on airplanes, which as you age, that does get harder to do. Right. And uh, so that I'm, that's what I'm doing. And I find out that I do have something to say because I think, unfortunately, people still, there are all these uh, kind of misinformation about how, what it's like to be older. And these some of these old stereotypes just cling and that, so one of the things I really want to do is get out the word that there's so much good news about what it's like to be older. And I can speak with authority because I am there. And, you know, I can, I feel like I can sort of shed a light 
on what this uncharted territory of old age is like. And most people, you know, I think boomers and everybody younger than them dread getting old. There's hardly anybody that says, I'm looking forward to be 70 or 80. Then people start when they're 30 feeling morose about their birthdays. So I have, you know, the good news is immense. You know, it starts with them. Modern medicine, which people take for granted now, but you know the people in my retirement come, they all have new hips and new and new good uh, eyes. You know they've got new cataracts taken care of. They have new uh, knees. Their skin gets uh, improved all the time, and you know it's kind of comical. But people come to the dining room with these bandages on their nose, bandages on. But they get, but they get, they're being kept alive and being kept safe. And so there's medicine. And then what people don't know, I think, is that the mental health uh, of people, older people, is actually better than younger people. There, there have uh, been studies now out in this uh, in California for the Center for Longevity that. Older people get less angry. They're less intense. They get sort of uh, mellow out. They get they, they just become to kind of enjoy their life. So there's some surprises that people have no sense that things are going to get better. And that's what I found in when I interviewed these people. I was looking for some role models, but I found out that almost everybody was way happier than they had ever expected. And that's really good news because that's not anything a 30 or 40 year old would expect of older people that we're happier. And but I know we're way happier than they are. They're still in the rat race. They're just getting up and running and running and running all day. And the bad thing about younger people is when I was in my 40s, when you left the job at five o'clock, the job stayed at work. Now it follows you home. It follows you at night. It follows you on the weekend. So I feel so bad for young people because they are working such horrendous hours. They have to answer emails. They have to pick up phone calls, even after hours. We weren't expected to do that when we were younger. We really weren't. The, the, the jobs were, were did stay in their place better, better than they do now. And I think that's hard. And I think this dread comes because people have just not learned. They don't see that many people that are still, as you say, yeah. spokespersons for the, what, can, what can happen and the opportunities. Yes. So, I'm lucky enough. I had my father as a role model. He was very happy in his old age. He was still at 85 walking seven miles a day. And I couldn't keep up with him. I really couldn't at 85. Then he had a car accident, hit his head. So dementia slowly developed, but he went into a home for 10 years and he was still very, very happy until the last couple of years. But he always exercised. He kept himself as healthy as he could. So, and he had a positive outlook. What do you feel about how important is a positive outlook for older people? I think it's very critical, you know, and there's, again, research on that that says that uh, they've had this, this study in the Journal of uh, Personality and Social Social Psychology that they actually put a number to it that they think if you have a positive attitude about aging, you're going to live 7.6 years longer than other people. I mean, it, it'll extend your life. And I do believe it, that fundamentally, it's all about attitude. Uh, if you have a bad, you know, are depressed, if you have a really are despairing, then, you know, this is what I think there is all this death by despair now of people with the drugs and the suicide. Um, so I think 
older people are, are far less suicidal by the time you're in your 80s. People have come to make peace with their lives. And I think that, you know, the 80s are happier than the 70s and the 70s are happier than the 60s. So that's good news for the boomers. And that comes again out of solid research. This woman, Laura Karsten, has done so much to kind of really put some uh, solid research. So it's not just, uh, you know, apple, uh, a pie in the sky or kind of Pollyanna talk, but it's real. So right. Right. Well, I think I think what happens in your 80s is like you just want to do what you want to do and you don't care so much, you know, before you're trying to please a lot of other people. But in your 80s, you learn I only have to please myself. That's the only one I have to please. So you are happier when you do that. Right. And you give up caring what people I mean, uh, what people think of you. The also another surprise that people don't know is that, that people think that their brain is inevitably going to go sharply downhill. They I mean, I grew up thinking we were told that if you even had one drink of alcohol every day, you'd lose your brain cells. Mm-hmm. So if having a glass of wine each day, like I do, uh, you could expect to have your, nothing left in your head by the time you're 80. Well, now the science again tells us that the brains have these this incredible quality of neuroplasticity, it's called, which means you can heal yourself that, but you know, we don't go down like this. We can, the brain can heal from uh, depression, from other kinds of blows and go on learning so that we can, you know, we can uh, be not only be wiser and more compassionate as we age, but we can actually learn new things. And uh, even they, maybe we're a little slower on the technology that realistically, right. We take a little helping hands to get, get done. But we can learn many things and we it's not like we're going to inevitably decline. You can look to life as a kind of growth and growing into wisdom and compassion. And so that's a pretty right. exciting uh, revolution. That is exciting. Yeah, that is exciting. And, you know, a lot of the people I talk to in their 70s, they're writing books for the first time. So oh, yeah. it's amazing how many are writing books because we have all this knowledge. We want to share it. We don't want to bring it to the grave with us. We want to leave something behind. So... We want to put it on paper and share it. So, no, people are writing their memoirs. That's just exploding. People are singing songs. There's, I mean, there's stories every day in the paper of single people doing these things. So, I mean, it is, there is a kind of a change that's in the air. And I think it's still a long way of getting it out to every person to sort of see, well, I'm kind of acting my life uh, still thinking that 65 is the time to retire and be more quiet and the fact is they're maybe going to live 40 more years. And that's a long time to be uh, sitting on the sofa watching TV or playing golf, you know. So that I think we really do, as a society, need to help people think about their life. I very much like this concept of elderhood, which is that we should think of life as childhood, adulthood that goes up till about 65, and then elderhood. And that it's just a different stage of life but each one has um, their uh, uh, pluses and, and, and problems. But what we could do is right now, as you were saying, the middle generation adults are too busy. They have no time. They're just running in this rat race. And many people in that third, when they become elders, they don't have enough. So if we had sp- spread the work out a little better and kept um, older folks working, maybe time like your, your uh, grandma, that makes so much sense. Uh, you know, I saw that first on a kibbutz in uh, 
Israel. And they had there the expectation everybody works so that even the, the guy that was like 94 was doing two hours a, a week of dishwashing and so on. So so I think we still have a lot. Uh, and uh, the society not only uh, doesn't have room really for older workers and they're, they're taking it their articles all the time how more people are working but uh, it's not only that we have to kind of stop thinking that the the world is all about the young and the beautiful and that you know kind of not even having all the advertisements beautiful people and you right. know, I, uh, one of the changes that has happened to me in my 80s is I have come to see the beauty in older people and the faces. And, you know, when you see somebody that has lived this long life and has survived and managed to hold it together and be a person of kind of a wiser person, it is like uh, truly something to behold. It really is. And I think um, you have to find your purpose in your elderhood. Like there's always going to be a purpose and the purpose helps you get up every morning and know what you're going to do. So now you've gone from working. Your new purpose is sharing the message, which is great. So at 87, I think it's great that there's still a purpose in your life. And I think we all need that. That keeps us going without a purpose that we feel um, really strongly about. Life isn't the same. I think it's just so much more exciting when we've got a purpose. So do you feel like when you did these interviews, did most of those people have a purpose still or were they searching for one? I think this is an area where there's still a lot to help people with that. You know, I wrote a, a blog about finding a purpose and, and that was one that people really responded to because the, I think they're uh, groping for a purpose and they don't quite know how to do it. So I think but I see here in my my right in my uh, retirement community, I, I there's a, a, a probably at least half the people have a clear purpose, and some of them aren't well. But purposes are kind of uh, at least fall into a couple of buckets. I mean, one of them is there's the creative people that are writing, and then there are just tons of people here that are uh, painting, and then we have a huge number that are working in in uh, ceramics, and they have a kiln, and people are so that those are people that are doing something artistic. Yes. Uh, and then there's the volunteers that, you know, for some people, they work with the we have a hospital right next door. And some people have worked for years just over at the hospital as a volunteer. We have a, a soup kitchen. People find work there, you know, or their purpose there. But I think uh, it takes some doing to find something that you love doing so much and that you want to as your focus. And so that I think people can have a, get a little help. There have been some uh, courses that uh, in town that people are caught on creative aging or aging well, and people have taken it because they need a little help, I think, to think it through and realize, because I think a purpose, as you said, it's sort of an organizing principle. You know what you're going to do when you get up in the morning and you're contributing. I think what people need to do is to contribute to the what I call common wheel, the the common the other people to be have something beyond. Now, some people, right. it's grandchildren. They might be, um, you know, they might take care of some grandchildren, or uh, you know, that is the purpose. But for many people, it's in some way continuing to contribute to their community. Yeah, I think it's important. We all want to feel needed. We all want to be able to contribute. That's an important part of aging and being helpful. We need to be social. So a lot of times by volunteering, you're out with people. That's taking care of your social part as well as you're volunteering and it makes you feel good. So 
you're bringing up here that, you know, I think one of the things we learned in the pandemic that people did not really adequately understand was that if we are social beings and mm-hmm. human beings are meant to be with other human beings. I know here in my retirement community, we were there were 12 weeks when we weren't supposed to go out of our rooms or apartments. And wow, I have a, a new love. So I was uh, was had company. But many people, you know, were singles and they were had those long weeks. We had Zoom as you, but it, it wasn't good for their health. It wasn't for, for their mental health, particularly. And so I think people now have learned that it's really a killer if you're so, socially isolated. And it's not only there's the social isolation, which people are taking seriously now. It's interesting in Great Britain, they even have a minister of loneliness and uh, helping people to combat that because they realize that it costs billions of dollars to have people not being at their best. Yes. And being lonely is, I think, rampant here in the States as well. And it's not just older people. It's younger people, too. There's a lot of loneliness out there. Right. And anyone that lives alone, some of them can be lonely, but the lonely people are when they don't have the connections, you know. So and it's um, again, there's lots to be learned for our society. I think that there's uh, things that haven't really penetrated. So let's talk about society tells us that there's not a whole lot 80 year olds can really do anymore. And we all know that's not true. But you have a list of 50 exciting things for 80 somethings to do in your book. And I just thought that was fabulous. So number one on the list is take dancing lessons. And that kind of takes care of two things. You're getting to be physical and social at the same time. The number four is singing a chorus. And again, that does the same thing. You get to sing, you're using your voice and you're being social. I think there, I love the idea of the list. So where did you come up with that to put that in your book? Well, you know, I had met all these people. So these are all actually every single one of those is somebody I met when in or talked with for my uh, book. So they're all real things that real 80 people you're doing. It's not pie in the sky. And right. so it was fun to do because I think uh, there is so much that I mean, I think that that's the task of being older is to kind of keep focused on all that you can do. And yes. Not do. I mean, I can't climb that mountain. I'm not going to go to Mount Everest. I'm not even going to get to the, you know, stage one. I may not. I've been wanting to get to Rome again. I don't know if I will, but there's so many things I can do. And I think especially now we're all kind of coming out of this pandemic and beginning to look at, you know, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm thinking Florida too. That's why I, a little earlier. Oh, right. <laughs> I might get to Florida this uh, February. I'm thinking about it pretty. So I'm I, I'm now aware that that is so important for not to keep kind of focusing, obsessing on the things that you have to give up. And my new love can't drive any longer. But that, he, you, you know, if the focus is to, to be just glad you can get somebody else to take you somewhere, you know, that's not a real uh, blockade to having a, a good life. Right. So you have to look at what you can do, not what you can't do. Like some people can't physically go out and volunteer. or They can't physically do certain things, but focus on what you can do. If all you can do is call up some friends and stay social with them, you're helping them. You're helping yourself. There's always something you can do, no matter how you are physically, there's always something you can do and you need to find it and do it. Right. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think it's absolutely true. 
there's a group that writes letters to people in prison or prisoners that are trying to get them out. And, and they just had a miraculous case where they got somebody released, you know, and they, so somebody writing that kind of letter, you know, they, one person had been a pen pal, pal for years with this guy in jail. And he, and finally they were able to get notice and get this guy uh, declared to give, be given asylum. That's great because there really are a lot of innocent people in jail you know, they've been railroaded. Uh, you know, society just had certain ideas about people and they, they, you know, if they didn't have good representation, they got railroaded. So I believe there are a lot of innocent people in jail. So that's a great thing to get involved with. If that's all you can do is write letters. Well, wow, that's great. Write letters to your congressman the same thing. And so I think that is a, a good place to start, that we can all do something. And to realize that the idea that you should be happy just sitting back and resting is part of the misinformation that's out there. We all need to be social. We all need to contribute. We all need to have fun. And there's all plenty to do. Yep. And the other thing I bring up a lot is we don't laugh enough as older people, as a society as a whole, we just don't laugh enough anymore. And that's important. (laughs) You're absolutely right. I mean, uh, th- that is so true. And, you know, uh, you, when you get somebody in your midst that's truly funny, you know, uh, it's, it's pleasure. And I mean, I once went to a conference was on laughter and healing. I mean, it's also it's good for you to laugh. So it is healing. There was a guy who healed himself of cancer by watching funny movies all day long. He was belly laughing all day and he was able to heal his cancer. So laughter can be healing. I agree. The, the mind and body are pretty much connected. You know, it's not surefire, but it, it works sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. So in closing, let's talk about, we were talking about letters. Let's talk about your legacy letter, because I really love the idea of a legacy letter. So who do you write it to? What do you say? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, when I one of the things I learned when from my interviews was that people didn't know much about their families, that they didn't often even know the some of them didn't even know the names of their grandparents. Mm. And very few know the names of their certainly don't know the full names of all eight great 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 uh, grandparents. So that we're kind of ignorant and we and also for our we now, even though we're gonna live long lives. Our children are getting married later. We, you know, I know now that um, I was thinking about it that, you know, my youngest grandson, I think I'll have to be 110. If he gets married at 30, I'll have to be 110. I'm not sure I'll make it. So that we do want to leave something. I know him well. He's 15 now. So I got this idea and I've, I've heard it before. It's not original with me, but I picked up on it. And it's the idea that to if there are relatives that you're you want to just write a letter to like I wrote I wrote one to my this grandson for when he would get married and what I would if I'm not around what I would like to say to him my boyfriend wrote one for his his granddaughter who's going off to college and he says I don't I'm not sure I'm gonna be around when he she just graduated from high school and so he wanted to write for her college graduation in case he wasn't there and what what he thought about education and so it's a letter that you write and you it can be short it, but it also you kind of let people know what you believe in and what your values are and what you uh, are like as a person and and, and what I thought about is if I had eight letters from my great grandparents each one telling me who they were what a gift that would be 
So I think it it works on so many levels. It's we can leave something to the people we know, but these letters could also become part of the family and in future generations would get a chance to know back now, you know, a hundred years from now, what it was like to be, uh, you know, living in 2021. I, I think that's a great idea. And I've got notes and cards from my mother, my father, my grandmother, and I keep them and I cherish them. They weren't legacy letters, but just little notes and, you know, cards that they sent me over the years. I've, I, I always hold on to stuff like that. I have letters my brother wrote me when he was like 25 and he passed away when he was 40 in 1990, but I still have his letters. He wrote these long, long, long letters. And, no. you know, so I still have them and they're very valuable. They remind me about him and what he was like, what his essence was. So no, well, it's nice. And yes, and, and we need to make room for this and make develop, you know, I, and I I put in the book that they, 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 they go ahead and copy these the parts that feel right. I mean, because some people say, well, I'm not a writer and, you know, I wouldn't know what to say. But, the, you know, the, so I, that's why I put in a couple of examples and um if people sign on to my newsletter, we always send them a couple of these uh, letters so they can have them to kind of work as an example. And, and then, you know, these are short letters. There may be two or three paragraphs. You don't have to write right. your life, but it could be such a pleasure for somebody uh, at another time. It really can. And the other thing you could do is just if you know how to tape yourself, just tape yourself talking about your life and what you've been through. Because like you said, the younger generation has no idea what the older generation has been through. They think life is tough for them. They have no idea how hard it was to live through the Depression, World War I, World War II, all of these things. So sometimes it's just good to hear it in the voice of the person. So make a little audio tape of that, too. There's so much we could do. And your, your, younger, your younger family might not appreciate it today. But 10 years from now, they might be really happy they have it because I think it takes getting older to appreciate that. I think when you're in your 60s and 70s, you really start thinking about things like that and you really appreciate that kind of thing. It's absolutely true. And people uh, say, oh, I wish I had asked my father or my grandfather. And so, so I think people are picking up on that somewhat in here and now, but it's not just universal. And it's certainly something that uh, I, as an advocate for aging well, you know, will be speaking about because I think it's something that can enrich lives tremendously. Yes. And older people love talking about their life. And then it's something that can help the younger population, too. So it is a win-win. Yeah, absolutely. So where can my Boomer Nation find your book and more information about you? Give us your web address or whatever you'd like to share with us. Okay, well, my book is on uh, Amazon and I, you know, it's a short book and, and I think it's very readable. And, and, you know, it the book changed me, as I told you, just by writing it. It, it was very important to me. But I found that it's this book is people tell me all the time that it has helped them. It's an upbeat look at the realities of aging and got, all based on real people. So uh, it, and so the book is in the bookstores, some of them, but mostly it's on Amazon. You can get it, you know, decide today and it'll be in your house tomorrow. I mean, the way Amazon Right. Also, at other places, you know, you can look and there are reviews there of they would read the reviews. You can see why people what they got out of it and how they were changed. I mean, I, one woman told me she, you know, she had a, a mother with dementia and the mother it was hard to manage. And then she read my book and she said it just helped her change her attitude. And 
come out of her working with her mother with so much more patience and and, and enjoyment. So, so and there's chapters, you know, on friendship and chapters on survival skills and love and sex and chapters on grandkids. And uh, so there's so many different aspects of aging that I tried to delve into in my interview so that I had something. And all of it is to say exactly how being old is different from and sort of what are the differences between being 60 and being 80? And, and what are all the hoo-ha-ha about being happy? What What is it that what that's good? So that's right. Amazon is then the place to get the books. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter and, and this thing called Medium. They can get see some of my articles. But if, if you can sign up for my newsletter and it's, uh, you know, www.catherinesty.com. It's just my name. Uh, it's got some funny spellings because the Catherine is K-A-T-H-A-R-I-N-E and Esty is E-S-T-E-Y, but CatherineSty.com. People uh, that are interested in aging well uh, and learning about what's going on in the field and getting a, a blog can sign up for my newsletter, which has a lot of tips and references to other the good other um, books as besides my own. So all of that's available to other people. I guess uh, you can maybe put this uh, this page here, you know, uh, that or in touch with Catherine. Yes, I can do that. And of course, I'll have all that information in my show notes as well. So when they go to kickassboomers.com, they can click on your picture and all the show notes will come up. So it'll, it'll give them a little running of everything we said today. And then it'll give them where they can find your blog, the website for that and remind them to go to Amazon. It probably will, even if you click on it, take them right to your book because usually my editors do that for me. So all of that information will be right there because sometimes when people are listening to a podcast, they're walking, they're they're exercising, they're shopping, and they're kind of listening as they go. They don't always have that pen and paper to write it down, but I'll make sure they have all of that information. So it'll all be in the show notes. So Catherine, it's been a delight talking with you today. Although my audience is mostly baby boomers, we're right around the corner of being in our 80s and some of us might have parents in their 80s. So I encourage my audience to go out and buy Catherine's book so that you can read the stories that were part of her research. There are also talking points at the end of the chapters where Catherine gives conversation starters, ideas of what to discuss with your family and tips for families questions your family can use to engage with you. So the book's a very valuable resource. So I hope you'll go out there and get it and use it. And thank you again, Catherine, for sharing with us today. It's been wonderful. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it a lot too. It's been a lot of fun. It's been lovely. Great. Thank you so much. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Kick-Ass Boomers. For more information on today's guest, along with the show notes and other inspiring resources, buzz on over to kickassboomers.com. And don't forget to join our Kick-Ass community on Facebook or LinkedIn to continue the conversation. Be bold, not old.